He's worthy of that adoration, and a story like we read tonight reminds us of why he is worthy of that. Why is Jesus worthy? Because he finds us where we're at, and he does not condemn us, but loves us nonetheless. Nonetheless, he loves us. Tonight we're going to be going through uh, the story that's typically known as the adulterous woman. In John 8, the last verse of John 7, and then verses uh, 1 through 11 of John 8. <clears throat> so the first thing we'll have to talk about before we get here uh, and get into the content of the passage is that this is almost certainly not from the book of John. It's an interesting scholarly question, uh, but it's pretty unanimous that this is not an original passage to the book of John. There's many reasons for that. One is the language is really unique. It's not fit, it does not fit with the rest of the language of John. In fact, it sounds more like Luke in terms of the Greek language that is used in the story. It sounds like a synoptic passage. That's one reason. The other is no early church fathers cite this passage at all in their commentaries on the book of John. They skip directly from 752 to 812, which actually makes sense of the passage. Remember I told you the Feast of Tabernacles was the setting of last week's sermon, right? The, the pouring out of the waters, right? Jesus, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. Well, there were two rites that defined the Feast of Tabernacles. The first is the water drawing ritual that I told you about last week. And the second is the great lights of the menorah in the temple in Jerusalem. And these great lights, there were four of them, the great lights would light up at night and fill the city with light. And it's in 812, still in the Feast of Tabernacles, that great day when it says in verse 812, Then again Jesus spoke to them, and he said... I am the light of the world. Jesus takes the two things that are the greatest rites of tabernacles, the water-drawing ritual, and he talks about being the source of the Spirit, and then he says, I am the light of the world in relation to the lighting of the candles. And so we know that that makes sense of how those stories fit together. This is something that has been put in. Like I said, no early church fathers cite it. In fact, it doesn't show up consistently in the book of John until the 900s, 900 AD. That's when you start seeing it show up in John consistently. The other thing that tells us it's probably not original is that it shows up in different places in a vast number of manuscripts we have. Some put it at the tail end of John, John 21, after John 21, 25. So it's like an epilogue. Some put it in other spots in John 7. And even a few manuscripts have it in Luke 21. It's found in Luke, which is interesting. Okay, so now that we've established that, it's important to note. But despite that, despite all of that, it does seem to be a genuine Jesus story. It's become known in Christian circles. It was, it was kept all these years in the Gospel of John, and it found a home here. And, and it seems to be genuine. It's consistent with what we know of Jesus. It's consistent with how he acted, how he operated, how he loved people. And so it's worthy of study. It's worthy 
to understand. It's worthy to look at. And man, I'll tell you tonight, as I thought about what I'm saying this evening, it is so applicable to today. So applicable to today. And the Lord still is using this passage, still inspiring us with this passage about who Jesus is. The Spirit is still speaking to us through it about who Jesus is and how he loves. So, with that background, we can enter the passage. In 753, it says this. This is where the the passage starts, actually. That verse is not normally in the Gospel of John in the earliest manuscripts, but it starts this way. Everyone went to his home. Everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. So it starts with an introduction, a setting, right? Whoever put this story in here wants to make sure that we know it's not the same event as what was just going on before it. So he, he gives this addendum, this setting, to say, oh, everyone went home, and now Jesus is back in the temple. It's got the setting again. He's back in the temple. He's teaching. And what happens? The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, it's commanded, it has commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Might have grounds for accusing him. The scribes and the Pharisees lay a trap. So here's what's interesting. The law of Moses, does it condemn adultery? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. The background for this is Deuteronomy Sorry, excuse me. The background of this is Deuteronomy uh, 5, I want to say. Sorry, I've lost my thought. No, 22. Excuse me. 22. That's later on, Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 22, 22 is the background. Deuteronomy 22, 22 tells us that when a man lays with a married woman, that they should both be stoned. They should both be put to death. It actually doesn't specify how they should be killed, but it says they should be put to death. And so we're here. And you see already, right from the get-go, Jesus senses their hypocrisy. Because not all the involved parties are there, are they? Deuteronomy 22 tells us that the man and the woman should be, should be killed so that they can purge the evil from Israel. Is what it says. And yet, where is the man? It says she was caught in the very act. They were in the very act of adultery. So where is this man? They obviously caught in the act. For some reason, he's been freed. And yet this woman is brought before Jesus and thrown before her. Think of the shame of that situation. Caught in the very act. She's probably either naked or maybe with some shawl or blanket around her. Exposed, shameful. 
thrown before a teacher in the midst of the temple. This poor woman. And the thing that's doubly tragic is, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees actually don't care about her sin, do they? They're not even righteous in condemning her for sin, are they? Because they're really, it's just an excuse to try to find a way to trap Jesus. They actually aren't concerned with the sin she committed or the fact that they want to be righteous. They're only concerned with finding a way to defame Jesus Christ. And it says so explicitly. And Jesus senses it, right? Well, here's the trap. Maybe I should lay that out. The trap. What is the trap? The trap is this. If Jesus says that the law of Moses has commanded us to stone such women, and he condemns her to death, he usurps Rome's power, who had the only power to condemn to death. In fact, if you remember, later on in this very gospel, we'll find out that the Jewish people did not have the right to crucify Jesus on their own. In fact, they go to the Romans for permission to crucify him. So if Jesus says, yes, condemn her, stone her to death, then they will say, yeah, we have a usurper. Let's tell Rome about this Jesus fellow who tries to take power away from Caesar and bring it to himself. That's one side of the trap. And what's the other? Jesus says, no, the law doesn't command us. And they have found him to not be a follower of Moses because the law is clear. The law does say we should stone such women. And if the law says that and Jesus says, no, it doesn't, he's both a liar and a lawbreaker and not a disciple of Moses. He does not follow the law. So Jesus is trapped. And here's what it says Jesus does. It says Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, But they persisted in asking him. And when they did, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What did he write? This question always comes up when we come to this passage. I'll tell you up front, it's speculation. There's no evidence for what Jesus wrote anywhere in the text. So all we have is speculation. But there are some ideas that have been put forward that I think are are worth considering. They're interesting. They make sense. But we don't know at the end of the day. And in fact, the point is not what Jesus wrote. Because if that was the point, they would have told us. They would have told us. That's not the point. But I'll give you a few backgrounds for it. I'll give you a few backgrounds. One is Jeremiah 17, 13. In Jeremiah, 7, 13, in Jeremiah 17, 13, it talks about uh, their names, meaning the unrighteous in Judah, the unrighteous in Jerusalem, their names being written on the earth for forsaking the fountain of living waters. See how that ties in right where this is found. Jesus has just talked about being the fountain, and their names are being written. Right, Their names are being written. That's one theory. 
makes sense. But again, we don't know. Another one is that Jesus writes down the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, right? And, and throughout the Gospel of John, it's been clear that Jesus is on a new exodus for his people to redeem them. In fact, throughout the Gospel, it's talked about him as the new Moses. So how appropriate for him to write the Ten Commandments. And of course, in him writing the Ten Commandments, what's he doing? He's making everyone face whether they've broken one of them. Right? As he says, let the one without sin cast the first stone in the ground. They're looking at their very sins against the Lord. The Ten Commandments written in the sand. Another like that is Deuteronomy 5.21, which I mentioned earlier wrongly. Deuteronomy 5.21. The Decalogue is repeated from Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments show up first in Exodus 20, but they're repeated in Deuteronomy 5. And what's interesting about Deuteronomy 5, when you get to verse 21, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. Right? You shall not covet. In Deuteronomy, it switches the order of what the, the words are in Exodus, and the very first words are, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, in Deuteronomy 5.21. And so some people say he writes down Deuteronomy 5.21, and in fact, the sin that they're exposed to is the very one that this woman is guilty of, right? Have they not already committed adultery in their hearts by coveting their neighbor's wife? Very specific. It's not even what sin have you caused, but look, you've done this very same thing. In this very same context, you have coveted your neighbor's wife just as she has committed adultery. Three good options. I, I like all of those. They, they make sense, but the, the point is not what was written, like I said. We have no idea what Jesus wrote. Whatever the case, the people are baffled that Jesus does this, right? And so he says to them, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Let the one without sin cast the first stone. He tells the accusers to examine their own hearts in light of bringing this woman before him. And, of course, what's the response? They find their own hearts to not be blameless. Their own hearts have sin hidden as well. It says in verse 9, when they heard it, when they heard what Jesus had said, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. I love that little note about the older ones leaving first. <laughs> it doesn't explain that, but I, I think the best explanation is the older you are, the more you can see how sinful you've been in your life, right? The more you have time to reflect on the mistakes of your youth, the sins of your life. I, I, I hope that we all, like that, could say we've become more humble in our old age, that we recognize how bent our hearts can be towards evil. So the older ones leave first, and eventually everyone realizes they cannot stand up to the test of sinlessness. No one can, 
except that man writing on the ground. So she's left there. She, she probably wonders what's about to be said to her. All her accusers leave. She's left ashamed, possibly naked, alone with Jesus. The one man who has the power to condemn her. And he does. He has the authority and the right to condemn her. Jesus could pick up that first stone, couldn't he? Jesus could pick up that first stone and start to kill her. Jesus, in his great mercy, in his God-like fashion, because he is like his Father, and what is his Father like? Gracious and compassionate. Compassionate, that's what Exodus 34 tells us. Gracious and compassionate. And just like his Father, Jesus says... Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. That's the passage. Mm -hmm. Jesus refuses to condemn the woman for her sin and encourages her to go on not sinning any longer. What an example of the grace of Jesus. What an example of the type of God he is and the man Christ Jesus that he serves. Right? He serves his Father who is like him, just like him, and Jesus reveals to us the heart of a father that is compassionate and gracious, merciful. And we don't understand yet because we haven't got that far in the gospel, but that very Jesus who frees her from condemnation will actually bear her condemnation. He will be condemned in her place. Maybe Jesus thought about that. Maybe Jesus thought about that as he freed her from condemnation. No, no, you won't be condemned. My dear daughter, Jesus talks in such affectionate terms. I love that. No, because I will be condemned in your stead. I will be condemned in your stead. And Jesus talks to us the same way, I think, tonight. Like I prayed at the beginning of this service, I thought about what our world is like and what has gone on, and then I was struck by this situation of bringing someone to the feet of Jesus to condemn them. And I guess tonight is uh, as political as you'll hear me get, I guess. But it's not really politics, it's Jesus. Because that's what I care about. That's what I think about. That's what I'm committed to, is Jesus. See, this woman is thrown before Jesus' feet so that they might purge evil. And somehow, unbeknownst to everyone there, the religious who are there, Jesus frees her from condemnation. 
How often is Jesus ready to free from condemnation where we are not? I'm going to caveat what I'm about to say before I even say it so you're aware. I recognize, I recognize there are earthly consequences for our sins. And there is judgment, and there is justice, and we should pay. I'm not saying we shouldn't. There are earthly realities that we pay for with our sin, and that's not a bad thing. I'm glad that, that people who do wrong are punished. That's a godly thing. But, but we look at the passage tonight and we're reminded of the eternal reality of forgiveness. So, I know there are earthly penalties. I know there are earthly judgments, and that is not a bad thing. But I will say what I'm about to say. Uh, also unequivocally, looking at the eternal state of things. There's my copy. At the feet of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, there's no condemnation. At the feet of Jesus, all lives matter. At the feet of Jesus, black lives matter. At the feet of Jesus, white lives matter. At the feet of Jesus, blue lives matter. At the feet of Jesus, prisoners' lives matter. Jesus won't condemn you whether you're a racist or Antifa, whether you're straight or gay, whether you're white or black, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Jesus does not condemn any for what the crowd wants to kill them for. And whatever crowd might exist, for whatever reason they might want to kill you, Jesus will not condemn you. That's across the spectrum of politics, of race, of gender. If you're a sexist, Jesus will not condemn you. If you're a feminist, Jesus will not condemn you. If you're a misogynist, Jesus will not condemn you. Across the board, Jesus, at the end of the day, no one can condemn in his presence. And what does he say to each one who's thrown at his feet? Where are they? Where are your accusers? Do they not condemn you any longer? Then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. As Jesus followers, as Jesus followers, though, we don't stop at what is easy for society to care about. We go deeper. Because for Jesus followers, not only do all lives matter, and black lives matter, and blue lives matter, like I said, racist lives matter, pedophile lives matter. Prisoners' lives matter. Murderers' lives matter. 
the worst scum, the worst evil this world has to offer, at the feet of Jesus, their life matters. And a true Christian, a true Christian knows that wherever our hate lies, whatever groups we just can't stand, even if we think we have a basis for it, man, they're the worst. No, they actually are evil. Those lives matter. And Jesus doesn't condemn them. And the church should be ashamed at how often, like the Pharisees, we have taken people by the arm and thrown them at the feet of Jesus and said, What say you, Jesus? What they do is an abomination to you. Condemn them, Lord. Condemn them. They deserve. They deserve condemnation. And how often Jesus would turn to us, brokenhearted over our callousness and our hard-heartedness, just like the Pharisees we can be. And he would say, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And that that person alone would have an encounter with Jesus. And he could say, where are they? Where are they? Man, may the church not be those people. May the church not be the people who bring those to Jesus and throw them at the feet of Jesus to condemn them. No, the true Christian, the good Christian, the one who is following the way of Christ, leads people to the feet of Jesus. Leads people to the feet of Jesus by hand and kneels along with them. And kneels along with them humbly to introduce them to this Messiah who would save them and change their lives. Why do we believe that all these lives matter? The worst scum, the most religious. Why do all these different lives matter? Well, we believe they matter because we have always believed the quintessential truth about Christianity is that when someone has an, an experience with that Christ, with the Christ who would say, neither do I condemn you, go on and sin no more, that people's lives are actually changed. Mm -hmm. Their hearts are made new. They're given a new spirit and a new heart according to Ezekiel 36. Mm -hmm. The promise of the new covenant. We believe people actually can change. That is in short supply in the world. The Jesus follower knows that people can change. Why? Because they recognize that they were because they too were thrown at the feet of Jesus. Some of us graciously, kindly, led by others, and some of us thrown to the feet of Jesus. And he had mercy every time. No matter what way you came to him, he had mercy. We all need that mercy. May we not be Christians who throw people to the feet of Jesus. May we be Christians who lead people to the feet of Jesus. That's my prayer for this church tonight. That's my prayer for the city tonight. Mm -hmm. Would we not become callous 
to the plight of the people around us? And will we lead them to the feet of Jesus? Not so that he might judge them, but that he might free them from condemnation. Mm -hmm. That an encounter with that Jesus, an encounter we may not even want to offer to someone because we despise them, but that encounter would change their lives, their hearts, their spirits. Mm -hmm. That they would become new. That the old would have passed away and the new come into being in that person. That's my prayer. My prayer is we would all seek our hearts. Seek our hearts for the things we know. Uh, the things that we know we struggle with in terms of people we hate. The groups that we can't get behind. The groups that we can't show any love to, that, that make our blood boil when we think of them. Whatever that is. And there's so many different groups for so many different people, whether it's racial or, or gender or whatever that may be, whatever your issue is, Jesus is still breaking down those walls. Jesus is still breaking down our hatred. And I, my prayer for you is we would all seek out in our hearts where those areas lie, where those groups lie, so that we might love them. You know, we wouldn't look to condemn them. We'd look to lead them to yeah. Jesus. Yeah. That's my prayer tonight. Let me bless you as I close. Heavenly Father, for everyone in this room, mm. you are not done with us yet. Mm. We are not yet where we should be. And we confess that openly. That we could be better. We could be more loving. And Lord, for everyone who has forgotten, everyone who has forgotten that Jesus did the same thing for us, found us in our sin and in our shame and in our nakedness, and did not condemn us, would you revive the image of that in their hearts. For those who harbor hate in their hearts, Lord, we're so grateful, O oh sweet and gentle spirit, that you rebuke us. We trust your rebuke. And we know we need it for life. True life, deep life, Jesus life. We need your rebuke. Would you rebuke us who hold hate in our hearts for wherever we may hold it and for whomever we may hold it. And Lord, for anyone who might hear this and has never had that experience to you, Lord, I pray your spirit would make these words that Jesus spoke, where are your accusers? And neither do I condemn you. Go on and sin no more. Would they hear those words as if Jesus was speaking directly to them tonight? Would you give them a vision of you, Jesus? That their life would be changed immeasurably. The one man with the power to condemn 
gives grace instead. Lord, please do that for those who don't yet know Christ, who would hear this message. For all of us, all of us who confess your name, help, help, help. Help us be like you, Jesus. May your spirit conform us to your image, Christ. We want to be like you. We want to think like you and act like you. Would you conform us, Spirit, to that great godly image of Jesus, the true man, the perfect human, that loved in the way that he did, that would lay down his life and sacrifice. May we have the same kind of love. Jesus, who would lay down his life for those who hated him, who were his enemies, who would seek to kill him, who would betray him like Judas, and he still laid down his life. Help us to love like that, especially in this day when no one remembers what love looks like. We confess it looks like you, Jesus. It looks like John 8. Help us to love like that. We pray these things in your name. And I pray a blessing on each person here that they would find opportunities to love people like that. Make those opportunities happen, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, guys. Love you.